Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 28 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Briefly resurrected from my sickbed and looking a shadow of my former self, which just incidentally is not a bad thing, I'm Steve Fisher. Meanwhile, over here in the other part of the city and staying relatively healthy, I'm Grant McCarran. How you going, Steve? Oh, I'll tell you what, mate. Uh, after a couple of weeks in bed sick, I'm uh, glad to be finally up and about and, uh, yeah, getting out and uh, recording this episode finally. It's been a bit of a uh, long one in the making. Yeah, no, it's, we've been offline for a little while. It's uh, between your health and my moving house and not having any uh, access to the internet. It's certainly taken its toll on our ability to pump out the uh, episodes. In fact, the previous episode was released via my Crackberry. You had uploaded the uh, completed MP3 and I was able to get online with my Crackberry and do all the magic of doing the final release and hitting send. So, uh, yeah, through the power of uh, online miracles, we uh, we got it out, despite me being sitting in a brand new house with no internet at all. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, mate, I think this podcast would never have existed without that device. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly does help. Yeah, it certainly does help. So, folks, uh, if you can put up with my croaky and scratchy voice for this episode, we'll get into it. Grant, this is another special this week. We're going to be focusing on the uh, B-24 Liberator in particular this week. Week. That's right. We're doing a special uh, special episode, which just talks solely about the uh, B24 restoration project that's happening just an hour outside of Melbourne in the uh, town of Werribee. Yep. Now, Werribee is a uh, suburb on the outer southwestern outskirts of uh, the Melbourne suburban area. It's about halfway between Melbourne and Geelong, which is uh, Geelong being our uh, second biggest city here in Victoria. And uh, Grant, uh, up until recently, I didn't know that there had actually at one stage been an airstrip at uh, Werribee. And it turns out that although the airstrip is no longer active, it's uh, still currently home to two rather large World War II era hangars, uh, one of which is occupied by a uh, very, very impressive restoration project. That's right. There's the also the other very large hangar there that uh, they're hoping to move the project into. Back in late January, granted, I uh, jumped into the PCDU mobile and loaded up uh, camera gear and recording gear and both our kids, and uh, we uh, took a trip down the uh, Geelong Freeway and paid them a visit. And uh, Grant, we had a wonderful day there. They showed us wonderful hospitality. They even fed us lunch, which uh, you know is always a risky proposition when you're looking at me. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a fantastic day. We got to meet some wonderful and very very dedicated people down there. Yeah, you know, we visited on a Thursday, Grant. I think they're open on Tuesdays and Thursdays down there. And uh, of course, this day uh, the place was, uh, as I said, just a hive of activity. People going in all directions, um, lathes and grinders and rivet guns and you name it, all sorts of machinery going in all directions. The aircraft appears to be in a uh, pretty advanced stage of restoration now. They have been working on it since the late 1980s, as you'll hear a bit later on. And uh, we were very fortunate to uh, grab an interview with uh, John Temby, who's the uh, the head of the project there. John's the president of the, of the uh, restoration project. And uh, despite the background noises and having to get the guys to shut things down a few times, we managed to get the whole uh, interview in. There's some, there's some great little outtakes in that interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, we've also got some video that we took uh, of the day, uh, which uh, you can view on our YouTube channel if you'd like to uh, see just how we do things here at PCDU. You do you do, need, you do, of course, need to listen to the interview to hear it properly. The the sound on the video, the camera was picking up everything behind us, so you couldn't really hear John and I talking that well. So, yeah, we've got about a 20-minute uh, or so interview with uh, John Temby, and he's going to tell us a little bit about uh, his time back in the Second World War uh, flying the B-24s. David Vanderhoof drops in a little bit later on to uh, give us a bit of a history about this aircraft in particular and the B-24 uh, program in general. Uh, really fascinating uh, discussion that we had with him on that. And to finish off, we'll be talking to a gentleman by the name of Ed Crabtree and uh, Ed was a pilot of uh, B-24s back in the Second World War as well and uh, that's a fascinating interview that uh, Grant uh, had with Ed uh, a bit later on in the day. Excellent. Well, let's, let's roll it and see what we get. 
Hi, I'm sitting here with uh, John Tenby, who's the president of the B24 Restoration Project here at uh, Werribee in near Melbourne, Australia. And uh, we're going to have a chat with John about his involvement with B24s, how he's been involved with them, and his involvement with this project, and a bit of a history on the project. So, John, thanks very much for being on the show. My pleasure. So, first of all, John, uh, tell us a bit about your aviation background, please. Well, I joined the Air Force oh, a, week or, a week or so after I turned 18 in 1943, and I was categorised as a pilot. I did my training all in well, Benalla and Point Cook, and then subsequent to that, um, I was posted as a staff pilot at the navigation training school in Mount Gambier, where I flew trainee navigators around in Avro Anson's for three or four months. Great fun. <laughs> uh, and then I got posted to the operational training unit on Liberators at Tokemall. We did the course there, and when we were finished the course, we went to Queensland and formed a, a new squadron, 102 Squadron, and worked up. And uh, just as we became operational, some uh, thoughtless American dropped a big bomb on Japan and spoiled all the fun. No more war. No more war. And that was the end of that. Did you stay on in the Air Force or did you demobilise? No, I applied to stay on, as quite a lot of our fellas did. Those who applied to stay on were kicked out immediately. Those who applied to get out became the interim Air Force. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone who didn't want to stay in got forced to stay, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So um, so you, you, you left at that point? I did, yes, yes, yeah. Did you keep flying at that point? No, not really. I had the odd trip with them. I, I, I served for, uh, or till uh, when, well, 1970 or thereabouts with the Air Training Corps and had cadets in camp you know, at various bases and I did uh, a bit of flying there. The, the biggest fun I had was an hour and a half in a vampire oh. with, one of, with one of the Central Flying School instructors. And, um, as soon as he got it off the ground, he said, well, you can fly it. <laughs> no, that was that was wonderful fun. So I did my first aerobatics since leaving Tiger Moths, and then uh, we went down low and right round the coast to Bega and back. Yeah, I bet it was fun in a vampire. Yeah, that's that's a nice jet. Yes, yeah. How many hours have you got in Liberators? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Be a, I don't know, a couple of hundred, two hundred and fifty or thereabouts, I would think. About how many total hours do you think you've got? Just over five hundred, which is not a lot by, you know, civilian standards, but uh, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that was, what, just a couple, over a couple of years, yeah? Yes, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. Flew virtually every day. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty intense. Okay, so um, how did you get to know about the B-24 restoration project? How, how, was that your idea, or what was... No, I was listening to the ABC radio program on a Sunday morning called Australia All Over, and a fellow named Bob Butler rang up and came on and was interviewed and I thought I know that voice and Bob was a was an ex-liberator captain he was also a, a flight commander in the air training corps that's how I knew him um, so I did a bit of um, ferreting around and found out where this liberator was located and I came here in as I say 1993 I've been here ever since and you're now the president aren't you yes yes that's right okay. yeah so what's your involvement what do you do as president uh, 
keep the keep the rabble of the committee in order on committee meetings. <laughs> Excellent. That's a tough job. <laughs> okay. Uh, what can you can can you tell me about the project? It's where it came, how it grew up, and uh, where it's going. Yes. Well, an ex wireless operator navigator, ex wireless operator air gunner, named Eric Clark, uh, was in this Bob Butler's crew, and uh, he convinced Bob in well back in about 1987 that we should have a liberator. So uh, they got a, a meeting eventually going in, in Canberra. There were quite a lot of organisations, including the Air Force and the National Trust, various other people involved, um, and it, uh, there seemed to be sufficient support for them to start doing something about it. So the, the non-for-profit organisation was formed in 1988, and then they started looking for bits. And the first thing that was found was... Um, was the wing. One, one of our fellows was uh, in New Guinea with, uh, on a rotary job out in the Ramu Valley one day and, and uh, saw an aeroplane that had been shot down during the war. He took a photograph of it and when he got home showed it to his father and his father was coincidentally an ex-liberator captain and his father said well that's a liberator if you're looking for bits for a liberator there you are. Yeah so um, after a, a lot of hard work and negotiation. The army finally lifted the wing off and um, slung it under a helicopter, put it on the harbour at Weewak and it came down by ship. That's in 1992 and that was the that was the only bit virtually that was here when I arrived. And then um, uh, the ferrets started getting around Australia and you know, our, our ferrets... <laughs> Oh, you've got to, yeah. And and we we had we had a, a the champion of all wheeler dealer ferrets, black named Colin Gray, and the stuff he found and the the things he talked people into giving us is absolutely incredible. Uh, we got the the tail unit, the tail plane, and a couple of old fins off a uh, a crashed aeroplane in I'm not sure Northern Territory, I think, or Queensland, one of the two. They were pretty badly beaten up but we've reconstructed the tail plane from it. The fins were so badly damaged that we just used them as patterns and the blokes here built brand new fins. Those fins you see there are uh, brand new, handmade. Uh, and that's, that's the sort of work we've been doing all the way through. Yeah, where, we, where we can't get bits either around Australia in farmers' sheds or in America in graveyards. We've got a lot of stuff from America. Um, we just set about making it from old stuff and the, some, some of the, the quality of some of the work that, that's here is absolutely unbelievable. This aeroplane really uh, is so well restored and built that you could fly it but naturally we haven't got uh, everything signed up that it cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to get it inspected and all the rest of it and we just haven't got that money. You'd need a hangar this big just for the paperwork. You would, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, who's who's been helping out? Have you been getting help from the RAF? Have you been in terms of sponsorship or funding or access to information or um, workers? Well, it's it's only very re- in the or during last year where we finally located a full set of manufacturers' drawings for the aeroplane. So we now have the benefit of those for stuff that we just haven't got. Yeah. We've got the drawings that we can make it. But sponsorships, um, the government's not really interested. Uh, the, the Air Force has done odd little things for us, but not a, not a great deal. 
Um, we've had a couple of small grants from the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, a thousand at every five years or something like that, okay. <laughs> which all helps, but, yeah, um, but the majority of our, our assistance has come from industry. Tenex, for example, yes. uh, the shipbuilders, yes. they, they came down one day and gave us $20,000, just, just like that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But um, oh, various various um, commercial companies like Alcoa, yeah. they, they, they've given us a, a lot of aluminium uh, alloy sheet, duralumin sheet. Um, various companies of that ilk, uh, you know, rivets and, and bolts and all yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, we've, had, we've had pretty pretty good support from those sorts of people. Now, um, you've um, been looking at the plans. You're looking to try and get a hold of a larger hangar just uh, like 500 metres further down the road. Um, this, this site used to be a, a, satellite, um, a satellite air station, yeah? Yes, it was a, it was a satellite training paddock for, for um, Point Cook. Actually, I did a, a fair bit of my intermediate training squadron flying actually from this paddock, so... Yeah, it, it has some memories for me. <laughs> uh, it's always good to reassociate with those memories. So, so yeah, you're, you, we're currently inside a, a, a hangar from that era, and there's another one, but that's being refurbished. I understand. Yes, the, the hangar down the road is is nearly twice the size of this one. The whole the whole of the old airfield is going to be redeveloped for residential purposes, and we're negotiating at the moment with the owners and developers to uh, so that we can move down there. Uh, they have given us a letter of intent that yes we will be the occupants the building has before we can go in has got to be completely refurbished the asbestos roof's got to be taken off for a start Um, a lot of a lot of work done on the building at the moment it looks as though the owners and developers will pay for that to be done as an incentive for us to move out and give them this corner but in exchange for that uh, we want them to demolish this hangar move it down there so we can use it as a workshop Use the big hangar as the museum with associated aircraft and artefacts and various things uh, and use this one as a workshop to to, uh, do maintenance and uh, restoration of other things. Okay, now at this point we had to adjourn to the outside of the building because, uh, as you'll see on the video, if you have a look on the YouTube channel, folks, uh, some of the people there were uh, working and not actually aware that we were recording, so uh, there was a lot of noise going on in the background. So uh, just the last part of this interview was conducted uh, outside of the building, so we'll just uh, pick it up from there. What what are your plans for that big hangar I'm looking at down there, uh, half a K down there? Yeah, well, the initial statement of purpose of the association was that uh, just a, a liberator would be restored, nothing nothing else, no, not where it would go or yeah. what happened. So in the last, since then, in 1998, we've changed the, the statement of purpose twice, the last in 2008, which now states that um, the purpose of the association is to uh, restore a liberator and associated aircraft and artefacts for display in an accredited museum as a memorial to all who served with liberators in World War II. Now that's opened the, the scope up. It's quite amazing. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's what should have been thought of in the first place, but it yep. wasn't. It was, uh, I'm afraid, the these two blokes that um, started the whole thing had a very personal memorial in, in sight, <laughs> rather than what it really in fact was so that's that that hangar that i'm looking at is going to become quite a, an important part of if you can get that 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 will let you have the aircraft sitting in it with other aircraft around oh, yes, it yes yes absolutely yeah yep. yeah yeah what other aircraft uh, have you got well 
we haven't, we've got bits of an Oxford so far, but we want to put an Oxford Anson and a Tiger Moth in, which were the aircraft associated with the training yep. of all Liberator crewmen. Yep, so mm. the, steps from, the steps up from yeah. first initial pilot in the, in the Tiger. And, 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 and the navigators, gunners, wireless operators, all, all trained in Ansons, pilots in Oxfords after Tiger Moths. But um, they, they are the three most significant aircraft. There were a few others, but yep. uh, to a minor degree. We're standing here in Werribee, which is not far from Melbourne, so it's quite easy for Melbournians to get here, or anyone visiting Melbourne could, could come down here without too much effort. Um, how can people help out? Well, our, our main stumbling block has always been money, as we mentioned before. That, uh, so that, uh, but simply by people coming down, seeing us, yep. uh, getting an appreciation of what it's all about, uh, spending time looking at it, appreciating it, um, and if they feel so inclined giving us a small donation which is always most most welcome and people can access your b24australia.org.au site are they able to put donations through from overseas via the site that's that's something that you've got me tossed on um being a, a very old gentleman i know nothing about computers <laughs> that's not a problem mate we'll have a look and we'll let we'll let our listeners know is there anything else you want to say about the project and so on no only that the the, the crew of fellows we got working here quite a few of them have uh, spent their lives working in one way or another with aircraft including one ex-liberator pilot who flew with tia and then Qantas who I'll introduce you to um, but one way or another they, they, they've, all, they've all melded into a, a wonderful bunch of blokes <laughs> they really are the, it's the one place I've ever worked as I, I said at the annual meeting the last year it's the one place I've ever worked where it doesn't matter who it is in the hangar you can insult the daylights out of any one of them so long as you've got a smile on your face and fully expected to be insulted back and it's it's great fun yeah, the, the fun definitely helps keep everyone together oh yes yes but they are they're a, a very dedicated bunch and uh, i don't think there's any of them doesn't want to see it through i can totally understand that having worked on some projects myself so yeah okay well thanks john pleasure uh, thank you for taking the interest Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. <laughs> that is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. 
Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. This Week in Aviation History, Australia Edition, with David Vanderhoof. Ridley Park, Pennsylvania is reputedly the home of Rocky Balboa, but more importantly, it's also the home of our PCDU historian, David Vanderhoof. David, are you there? I will not write B-O-A-C. I will not say B-O-A-C. I will not say Boeck. I will not say Boeck. Can I stop now? That yeah. was a thousand, Grant. <laughs> yeah, okay. You can get off it now. It's That's fine. How's your, how's your writer's cramp, by the way? I think my wife's a bit upset because I've written it all over the, every wall of the house. It's so I think she's... <laughs> Pretty much got the point. It's a lovely so now I'm down with her. <laughs> Romani's aunt domus. <laughs> no, I tell you not to use that language around me. Latin is a dead language, dead as it can be. First it killed the Romans. Now it's killing me. Oh, yes. Good Lord. Here we are. So, so, guys, why are you interrupting my Sunday afternoon? What was it you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, uh, uh, David, we've been out on a little excursion over the last couple of weeks, and uh, we've been looking at the uh, B-24 Liberator restoration project down here in uh, Werribee, uh, southwest of Melbourne. And uh, so we're uh, we're hitting you up for some historical facts about the B-24, because we don't know a lot about it, and we're sure you do. Well, I did some research. You guys have a B-24M, actually a consolidated B-24M Block 10CO Liberator. Alpha 72-176 was built in 1944 at the consolidated plant in San Diego. The majority of B-24s actually were built in Willow Run, which was the Ford plant, but yours actually is a early block B-24M. The B-24M was actually the last version of the B-24 that was produced. I believe you guys had over 300 B-24s that were sent down to you, starting off with a bunch of used B-24Ds. Those are the ones with the glass nose, not the one with the turret on the nose. And the B-24Ds were used for training. One of the most interesting things I, I discovered was they were used for clandestine and special ops. They were used as transports to get guys into various islands behind enemy lines to drop SAS agents and whatever the Australian version is at. Maybe you guys can help me with that. But for special operations, it's got an interesting history. It evidently was left to rot in a field and was sold for scrap in 1948. And a gentleman decided that he decided to like to leave it in his backyard. So you guys know more details about the aircraft. But for all intents and purposes, the B-24 was the most produced bomber in World War II. The total production run, and I can't find that number off the top of my head. 8,600. Oh, this is from Ford's Willow Run factory. See, the problem is, the problem with us Americans is the B-24 is the other bomber. Willow Run was the ultimate freight train. It took forever to get started. Ford decided that it was the ultimate assembly line. And the government got really upset with Willow Run because it wasn't really producing what it needed to produce like the claims were. But once it got started, it couldn't stop. And actually, one of the things interesting about the B-24N was after the contract ended in 45, when the war was over, there were still 900 of them produced at the end of the war. A lot of those B-24s only had one flight. They literally took off from Willow Run. They flew to Arizona to be scrapped. Jesus, oh, what a waste. 
That's nuts. It, 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 yeah, and I, it, I read that fact today, and it was like that's unbelievable. But you see the, you see all of the disposal areas after the war, where you see hundreds upon thousands of aircraft just sitting yeah. out there, all of which we would love to get our grubby little hands on now, oh, yeah. and we're not. We have two B twenty fours in the United States that are flight worthy. One is actually an is owned by the Collins Foundation, and that is now in, I believe, Dragon and its tails markings. They change the markings on it on a regular basis mm-hmm. to pick specific units. The other is the commemorative Air Force's LB-30, which is not really a B-24. It was a transport version of the B-24. Yep. But it, it is the only flight one with a glass nose. And evidently, I found out today that Diamond Lil is no longer Diamond Lil. The commemorative Air Force has even gotten even more politically correct and taken the nude off the side. So, uh. so it. I, I luckily, I have some lovely pictures of Diamond Lil So when she was still Diamond Lil. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But um, you guys are really blessed with what looks like a really great restoration from their website. And I think it'll be really neat for you guys to have a flying B-24, considering it sounds like it had a really great flight record with the RAAF. And it was up until you guys mentioned it, I didn't realize the depth which you guys had a relationship with the B-24. It's just not something that we would actually pay attention with up here in the States. I don't know that it's actually good. I, I don't think they're going to restore it to, to actually fly it. It's going to be restored as close as possible to flying condition, uh, but I don't think they're actually going to fly it. It's going to be one of those ones well, that, well, it, we could fly it, but we're just going to leave it here forever. It, it was a little difficult to get that information out of them, wasn't it? I, I asked a few of the guys there, you know, just exactly what yeah. they what their intentions were because their stated intention is to get it back to the point where it's an operational aircraft. And I said, oh, great, yeah. so you're going to make it airworthy. And, you know, they were, oh, maybe, we're not sure, we don't know, yeah. yes. Yeah, I think, I think they're going to get it to the point where it can be it could be flying if someone wanted to go through all the uh, hula hoops of CASA to get it to fly. I'm willing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you got, I don't know what it's like down there, but our warbird industry up here is really taking a hurting because they just can't get the insurance to fly these things anymore. Yeah. You know, so where there's a lot of aircraft that get grounded because they don't. I mean, the Colin Fa- Collins Foundation actually does, does it right. The primary, they give a lot of, they actually, what I found out this weekend was they actually now have a weekend where you go on a bombing mission. Oh, cool. They launched their awesome. B-17 and B-24. You go on you go on Thursday and stay till Monday and you go over the weekend. And the culmination is like on Sunday, you get a position on the bomber, um, maybe a gunner or a turret operator or whatever. And then they launch their P-51B. They launch their ME-262. Against the the P fifty one is a red tail, which is the Tuskegee yeah. Airmen yep. who never lost a bomber, and their ME two six two I actually am kind of fond of because it's based on the one that my at Willow Grove at the okay. base that I grew up on wow. is the restored is the mock up that was based on the two seater that I grew up looking at. Cool. But supposedly you fly your bombing mission and the ME two six two comes out and takes out the bombers and the P fifty one goes chasing it and you have you have a couple of hours. But who's I mean? But that's I think they said was like four thousand dollars for the weekend, U.S. Mm-hmm. But they they are they the rides pay for the aircraft yeah, as yeah. they go around the country. 
David, when we look back at uh, a lot of the uh, World War II coverage, and particularly with movies and uh, and, and such like, uh, a lot of the coverage of, of these type of aircraft uh, centres around their operations in Europe, in the European theatre during the war, and you don't often see a lot of coverage of the B-24. Everybody knows about the B-17. What was the role of the B-24 in that theatre, in the European theatre in the war? Was it as active as the B-17 or more so? Well, the B-24 was the less glamorous. There were more of them in the European theater. The B-17's claim to fame was the infamous Memphis Bell. That's what started it, was that Memphis Bell was the first one to complete the missions necessary to go home on the tour. And in fact, it was the second aircraft to do it. So the glamour and the fame came up behind the B-17 because of the documentary about Memphis Bell. You can parallel the the discussions with the B-24 and B-17 with the similar discussions, which is um, the P-51 Mustang was the glamorous aircraft, but the P-47 did all the work. The B-24 was a better aircraft. It had a longer range. The B-24 was actually, its wing was based on float planes. It was more fuel efficient, carried a bigger bomb load than the B-17. It just wasn't the first one to complete the necessary hundred missions to get all the recognition. Now, you could also parallel the fact that there was a lot of B-17s and a lot of B-24s in the China-Burma theater and in the South Pacific theater. They don't get any notoriety as much as the Europeans were. It was just, we, for some reason, always have been very, at least in the States, more Eurocentric towards the European war than over the the Pacific War. And the Pacific War was the Navy's war. So the Army air crews that fought in those theaters, not counting China, Burma, India, which was even the more obscure theater, but the Southwest Asia theater, that was the Navy's war. And the Army took a second fiddle to Hellcats, Wildcats, and versus Zeros and Carriers. There's really still a lot of history that could be done on U.S. and Clearly, Australian, there wasn't a lot out there that I could find about the B-24 units. A couple of small websites. The best one as far as history goes was um, James Bowers got a uh, B-24s for Australia website. And I'll definitely give you guys the link so you can upload it. There really wasn't much out there. And it sounds like there's a lot from a historic perspective. It's, it's one of those, if someone would take the time and do the research, I'm sure there's a lot of great stories that could come out of it. Unfortunately, the people who would be the first person narratives to get it from are all disappearing quickly. Yeah, they, they actually have a, a really good uh, map at the, uh, at the museum down there in uh, Werribee uh, where they're restoring this one, David, uh, showing the range of the B-24 coming out from Australia, the radius of operation of that aircraft, and, and for its time and for the technology, uh, it had incredible range. You could go a long way out over sort of the Southeast Asian region, and the way it was described to us by some of the people there was that um, basically the Japanese felt that uh, once the B-24 came into service that they were no longer safe in daylight hours whatsoever because the aircraft just had such incredible reach. Yeah, there were 15-hour missions and things like that. So long haul back then, the the guys would come out and they'd be deaf for hours. (laughs) It's funny. One of the things that has always been kind of amazing for me is, and a little bit more so with the B-17, but definitely with the B-24 is, all three of us are of the same age. We grew up with things like 747s. To imagine spending 
eight and a half hours in not very big airplanes at altitude where you're cold and damp and there wasn't really heat. And when you open up the Bombay of a B-24, that breeze is going to go <laughs> right through the whole air, yeah. whole yep. fuselage. And add to the fact that, you know, you've got waste gunners and they weren't sitting in turrets. They had big gaping open windows with 50 calibers sticking out of them. It, it's one hell of a way to fight a war. And I don't think us who are used to flying in large airplanes, I mean, you guys are constantly talking about that Airbus whale of yours. <laughs> if you park that next to a B-24, it's a, not a very big airplane. Even a B-29 is not a big airplane. It's, it's sort of amazing that these were large, heavy bombers. Yeah. And in the scheme of things, they're not that big, and it's a really different way to fight a war. Yeah, well, that's the, the guys, like the, the added complexity when you're fighting north of Australia, um, in the northern parts of Australia and in the, in the Pacific area, is you're cooking and boiling on the ground, but you're freezing up aloft. So you've got to have all this thick gear, but you take off and you're in shorts and shirt practically, you know, <laughs> the the guys, like some of the fighter pilots and all that would, would not be wearing a lot on the ground, but then they needed to have the extra extra heat when they were aloft. So um, that that added the complexity, at least in the, in the UK you'd, and in Europe, you'd be bundled up on the ground anyhow, because typically it was cold. With with my buddies, we were talking about ball turrets yesterday, <laughs> and, that, and that would be a job that, well, I'm a bit claustrophobic to begin with, but with the six yeah. foot four frame, you weren't going to get me in it no matter what. No, we were having a look at the ball turret of this particular unit and the guy showing it to us said you had a bit of incentive to try and shoot the zero because you're shooting between your legs. So as you're shooting those two um, machine guns, which had their breeches right next to your ears, so you're deaf even with earplugs and sound gear and all that, you're shooting at the zero. Well, that zero is coming up shooting at your bum because you're looking between your legs to shoot. You've got your... Um, the guns go down either side. You're, you're sort of like sighting along your belly the way you're all scrunched up in it. So as you're shooting at the zero, his bullets are coming right between your legs. And it's funny because from a modeler's perspective, when you build a model of a B-24 and you get a glass ball, you, they're always a clear plastic and you get this very and it's and you literally paint the framing it takes a lot to realize that all that little glass which is a couple of skylights and really just the glass between your legs which is what how what you were citing for in your case yeah. a zero there's really not a lot of room and that goes for a lot of the other compartments in any of these yeah. in any of these bombers and the, the the key to the bomber, no matter what it was, was the bomb site and the Norton bomb yep. site, which we were blessed with in the B-17 and the B-24, was luckily the best technology there was. I mean, yep. but the B-24, I couldn't, I can't imagine them using B-17s in Australia. The B-24 had it had a substantial range, and it is the reason why the Navy took it. The PB-4s were the long range, and in the North Atlantic, to go back to the European theater, they were the ones that carried the Greenland-UK gap. And once they had B-24s patrolling, I mean, that took a lot of the U-boats out. So it had the range, the endurance, and by the time you guys got them, the, the airframe was perfected. It was lighter weight and could carry out even longer range attacks than what you guys had. Evidently, you guys were supposed to get Lancasters to start off with, and I won't insult our English people, but you got a better bomber. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, that's agreed. Uh, yeah, we were very British. There was um, a lot of contention with going with anything American like the P-51 and things like that. We were very much linked to Whitehall. So to have the, for the parliament to even consider going with, with American equipment did cause some stirs. But we did have B-17s down here. The the, uh, the US-based B-17s out of the north of Australia, as well as the B-24s. Uh, one of the guys that we've interviewed, Ed Crabtree, who's a uh, working as a fitter on the project. He started as a fitter and then became a pilot. Uh, he did a lot of his flying with the U.S. Air Force that was based out of Australia. And it was primarily U.S. Um, Army Air Corps that was doing the training for you, and it was their, it was their hacks, the B-24Ds, that started you guys down the road to the B-24s. They yep. couldn't use them operationally for missions, but they could use them for training to get you guys up to speed until you got the um, B-24Ms. Yep. J's, L's, and M's. Yeah, there was a uh, there a couple of the D models down here got modified to include the nose turret. They rebuilt the nose, but uh, yeah, the um, one of the guys was telling us that the turret just behind the cockpit, um, the mid upper, if the aircraft started going down and you were in that turret, the odds were pretty high that you weren't going to get out. You were going to ride it all the way to the ground because uh, the centrifugal forces and so on as the aircraft would start spiraling in would just push you into the glass and you wouldn't get out. Ugh. I heard that groan. Yeah, you can't <laughs> yeah. imagine it, can you? You can't imagine it. And 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 the the crews operating these aircraft too. I mean, we we often don't think about this. They're all very young men. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is kind of amazing having having a veteran of World War II as a father. Um, it is amazing, sort of how we won the war with eighteen-year-old kids. Um, I know that we still currently do it, but these guys were young. They were young, and they worked long hours fought you know and a lot of my i i believe somebody described flying a b-17 and this would go for a b-24 was long hours of monotony coupled with a couple of minutes of terror permission yeah so yeah. it and i could imagine everything else like that so yeah that's look the the that is a kind of common phrase for anything military aviation these days lots of boredom with uh, punctuated by sheer moments of terror but um yeah the it was an intense time and uh as i say the greatest generation out of interest with the b-17 here in australia uh i've got reference to it being the still australia's worst air disaster was a b-17 flying fortress crash apparently being used in uh, was carrying 41 people on board uh, as a troop carrier a uh According to this this information I've got here, it was a B-17C, and uh, it was flying with uh, 41 people, crew and passengers, on board and uh, crashed. So it's uh, that actually holds the record as Australia's worst air disaster. That's impressive on several levels that that is the worst air disaster that you guys have had in your country. And um, it's a very interesting statistic. Okay, yeah, well, well uh, we better wrap it up there, David, because our friends at the Airplane Geeks podcast are uh, waiting to employ David services for their show. That's pretty rude of them, really, when you think about it, mate. I mean, you know, who's more important here? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Well, guys, I, I, I got I to gotta keep my neutrality and my code-sharing agreement going. We absolutely um, I understand. I appreciate the opportunity, guys, to talk with you live. I mean, it's easy to do a recording when you're sitting staring at the computer and recording in, but being able to have a conversation with you guys, and I will honestly say, you guys have become my fast friends. Um, I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to, to do this live. Oh, and no, we appreciate everything you do for us, David. It's 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 fantastic. Just uh, before um, you go, David, just tell the listeners uh, where people can find you online before you sign off. You can find my Twitter account at dmvanderhoof, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-O-F. 
And um, you can always find my blog at whatjustflewby.blogspot.com. And it's an excellent blog, folks. And if uh, you're looking at uh, all of our three personal blogs, um, certainly don't take a look at mine. David's puts mine to shame. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, David, we'll let you head off and do the Airplane Geek Show. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to uh, grabbing another history segment from you uh, in another episode or two. Absolutely. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Yeah, so there we go, Grant. Uh, as usual, David just, uh, I don't know where he gets all these facts and figures from, but particularly when it comes to military aviation, he's right on the button there. He, he, he knows it all. Yeah, no, he's, he's very clued in, very very on the ball, and he he does more than just having a quick look at Wikipedia, that's for sure, Yeah, which is which is my first port of call. <clears throat> Anyhow. Yeah, and uh, just as I happen to uh, flick onto the Wikipedia page here, Grant, uh, <laughs> interesting to note that uh, back in World War Two, it says here that the, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force's heavy bomber force was... Uh, comprised of 287 examples of the B-24 Liberators uh, based uh, here in Australia and in uh, Papua New Guinea and could uh, bomb Japanese targets as far away as Borneo and the Philippines, which was very, very important uh, back in those times. You know, you know, Grant, you often see in the movies and stuff uh, such as that, and even documentaries, that the Pacific War is, whilst I wouldn't say it's forgotten, it, it sort of takes second place. I feel a lot of time to the, uh, you know, the European War and things such as that. And of course, uh, as uh, David was saying in that segment that we recorded with him, the B-24 is often known as the the other bomber uh, in the European campaigns. Of course, the uh, you know the B-17 took most of the glory, and down here in the Pacific, I guess the uh, the B-29 was, uh, you know, took uh, a lot of the publicity down here with, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the U.S. forces based out in the uh, Pacific War. But uh, the Liberator, uh, with uh, 287 examples, Grant, going by some of the stats that I can drag up here, that looks like it's probably the largest heavy bomber force that the RAF has ever had. Yeah, the, the, the Liberator was definitely the uh, most common heavy bomber we've ever had since the beginning of the RAAF. And uh, not surprising, it was a war. They did have lots of them, but they, they were able to stage on such extremely long missions. And you, you really do, like I was saying with David, you've really got to feel sorry for these guys. They, they'd come out and they couldn't hear anything. They were vibrating for hours. It's, yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty intense. Yeah, mate, I, th- I think it's I think it's really great that uh, we're doing something to preserve the heritage of this bomber, given so many men flew in it during the war here in Australia, let alone the rest of the world, and gave their lives protecting the country and and the way of life. So, and that, that's one of the uh, you know, you know as um, as John Tembe said uh, towards the end of his interview, there, it's one of the things they're aiming to do is is to make the restoration project here a memorial to uh, all of the crews that operated in the uh, in the Liberator over the time that it was uh, on active duty here in. Australia. I really encourage you to get down there, folks, and have a look at uh, what they're doing there. Uh, it certainly is going to be a, a very, very fitting um, uh, memorial to these crews, to these uh, really brave air crews uh, that operated this aircraft. And and uh, at the stage of uh, restoration they're at now, it's not going to be too many more years, I think, before it's they're really up and running. And uh, that, that's going to be a fantastic memorial. And uh, Grant, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting down and uh, seeing how they're going over time. Yeah, no, definitely looking forward to going back there again soon. There's so many others on the project that we want to have an interview with, but I imagine we'll um, slot interviews like that in amongst the uh, rest of the programs unless unless we have a lot of material to make a, a yet another special B-24 episode. So uh, speaking of some of the brave air crews that we've come across uh, that operated this aircraft, coming up after the break, uh, Grant's going to talk to Ed Crabtree, who uh, flew the aircraft in active service during the Second World War. Stick around, we'll be right back.
G'day, this is Owen's Up. Join me in May 2010 as I trek around Australia in a Jabiru 230 to celebrate the centenary of powered flight down under and in the process raise vital funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Check out my website and follow my progress at www.thereandback.com.au. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the in-flight service with Grant and Steve on Playing Crazy Down Under. Is your company in the aviation industry? Advertising your business on our podcasts is an easy and inexpensive way of reaching the growing online aviation community. Whether a conversational infomercial or radio-style ad, we can produce advertisements tailored to your target market and budget. We can also use your own pre-produced commercial. With an audience of pilots, professionals and enthusiasts across the Asia-Pacific region and growing around the world through increasing cross-promotion with other online media, this is a great alternative to traditional advertising. For further information, simply go to our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. Hello, this is ex-cosmonaut Ivan Astibatic from juniorflyer.com. Do sometimes you have an itch you just cannot scratch? I know I do. I suggest you listen to those crazy guys from Plain Crazy Down Under. It's not a cure, but it will help distract you. Das Vidania. Right, I'm standing here with Ed Crabtree, who used to fly B-24 Liberators. And Ed, we're going to have a chat with you about your um, history as a pilot and uh, learning to fly and so on, and also your association with the project. So thank you very much for having a chat with us. And uh, can you tell us a bit about how you learned to fly and things like that? All right. Well, I started off as a fitter, really. I was a fitter for three years. I actually joined to become a pilot, but uh, there were no aircraft in the earlier days. So at the end of three years, I was able to get back into aircrew. And I uh, went to Summers to do a course there. And after about three months there, we went, I was sent to Benalla and uh, learnt to fly Tiger Moths. Funnily enough, the first day I got to Benalla, uh, we were busy unpacking and uh, the CEO walked in. He says, Crabtree, where are you? And I said, oh, over here, sir. He said, right, the rest of you continue unpacking. He says, uh, Crabtree was my, uh, as a nephew of my legal partner. So he told me, if you ever get into any trouble, he says, don't bother going through all the, you know, corporal, sergeant, warrant officer and so forth. Just come direct to my office and I'll fix it up. I said, no. <laughs> which is pretty, I never had to use him, but uh, he was there in the background, which is good. So after a couple of months there at Benalla, doing, uh, learning to go solo and uh, the various aerobatics and yep. force landings and so forth, I was posted on to Point Cook. And Point Cook were airspeed Oxfords, a twin engine. Yep earlier aircraft and uh, I find there that my instructor was a, a fellow I flew in an autogyro in 1935 <laughs> <laughs> so he says oh he says, I remember you and I said yes I remember you too he says I'll fix you lad <laughs> and apparently the, this autogyro I asked him what happened if the motor cut out while you're flying it and he says I'll show you so he cut the motor and we just came down thumped into the ground bags of dust everywhere <laughs> And he says, actually, like six months later, somebody asked me the same question. I, I did the same thing and wrecked it. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's now up in Sydney somewhere. It's been rebuilt oh, okay. a, as a static exhibit yeah. there somewhere. Uh, well, so I got through Point Cook pretty well. <laughs> and uh, uh, having been an airframe fitter, I went along to lecture on airframes, and the corporal there knew me from about 1940s as... Grabbed said, Don't want you here, you'll ask all the awkward questions, <laughs> nick off and go to the library and read a book. <laughs> so I did that, and I was the chief uh, 
ground instructor caught up with me, the squadron leader. And he says, what am I doing here? And I said, oh, the corporal said I was excused because I'd been an airframe fitter. He says, get back to the class. He says, I'm watching you from now on. Oh, no. And he did. He used to follow me around. <laughs> and uh, after finishing at uh, Point Cook, um, they were calling out all the promotions and postings and so forth. About 20-odd became sergeant pilots and they posted all around the place. Five uh, were made officers, of course, and he went through those five and says they're all posted to the 5th Air Force, uh, 380th Bomb Group up at Darwin. Didn't mention my name at all. And then I was looking at him like this, and he said, oh, and uh, Crabtree, pilot officer, posted to the 380. He's <laughs> determined to get the last squeeze out of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty terrible. Cool. That's I got up to Darwin uh, with the uh, 380th Bomb Group, and uh, I was just there unpacking, and uh, a jeep screamed up out the tent and he says Crabtree I yes he says get your ass over to transportation and draw out your jeep <laughs> couldn't believe it <laughs> so uh, I shared a, uh, a tent with the squadron operations officer and um, the intelligence officer which is a pretty nice sort of start <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh, for the first couple of months I just flew around as a co-pilot to the CO on all sorts of you know, ferry trips and so forth, yeah. practice running in new engines and uh, doing compass checks and so forth. And then uh, after that, they decided to send me out on operations as a co-pilot. So, what, what, when so no OT or anything, no, <laughs> no training, just straight into it. Throw in, here's a deep water. Yeah, yeah well. I'll say. So I, wasn't, I didn't know how I was going to go. Yeah. Yeah, you never do until no. you get into operation. You don't know whether you can stand up to it or whether you fall in a heap. Yeah, it turned to jelly in the Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when was your first op? Uh, about uh, February, I think, 1944. And I forgot where it was, somewhere up in the islands of New Guinea or somewhere. And uh, all our stuff was long range, anything from about nine hours to 15 or 16 hours. Okay. Pretty long runs. Yeah. Uh, with the, uh, they left all the short uh, areas for the... Uh, twin engine bombers they yeah. could get there and they couldn't get to the places like Borneo or Halmahira Group or Java yeah, it's a real long uh, yeah so we fell for all that stuff that, that would have been interesting sitting in a droning liberator for uh, 15 hours yes it's not good it's, yeah. you get corns on the backside I can tell <laughs> and our, our seats were a backpack and then underneath you had a one man dinghy Oh, okay. Which which formed the seat. And the one man then you had a little um, gas bottle there to inflate it. <laughs> that was always on the surface, and you're sitting on that, and you're sort of screwing around for hours and hours <laughs> trying to avoid getting a bed sore or something from yeah. that damn thing. Yeah, no, not really. Terrible thing. Uh, uh, some of the trips we went on, one was, uh, I can remember, we worked for Marble Bar in Western Australia. That was the closest okay. one to Surabaya. Yep. And uh, that was about. 14 hours or 14 or 15 hours and we got over there in the middle of a, uh, a, a rainstorm and we made one pass over it and missed it with <laughs> ack all over the place as well and uh, we decided that we'd go around again <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> which is not good <laughs> no because i know you're coming <laughs> anyway we got around again we, we managed to go right over the bright engineering works and we we were first in and we laid a a trail of incendiaries about 100 yards wide and about about a mile long, right through. 
beautiful. I'm here, guys. It was very nice to see it when you got away from the place. Yeah, yeah. Very well lit up. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how many ops did you do while you were... Oh, about 18, I think, altogether. Okay. But uh, they're all with American crews. I never flew with an Australian crew. And uh, they checked me out as a uh, flight commander before I left there. Cool. <laughs> and uh, when I left... Um, Fenton. I was there for nine months and I came down south. I was supposed to go to 36 Squadron, which was a DC-3 uh, cargo stuff going up and down the east coast. And I got a telegram the day before, says, report to Tugamore as an instructor. <laughs> so, had you ever instructed on anything before? No, no. <laughs> so the, um, the chief instructor says, oh, he says, I'll give you a check out. So I checked out with them using the American... Um, cockpit drill which is a bit quite different from that imagine, yeah. and he says oh you can't you, you can't fly a liberator like that i said well i've been doing it for nine months without getting in any trouble he says here's here's the cockpit drill and a sheet you know, a full scap sheet of directions what you stage by stage <laughs> and uh, i finally got through that and they let me go as an instructor and i was only a flying officer at that stage because yeah. i'd only been a, an officer for what, seven or seven or eight months, I think. Yep. They said, you can't be an instructor here without being a, a flight lieutenant. Okay. So he says, tomorrow you'll be a flight lieutenant. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> about, promotion. about 15 months ahead of time. <laughs> okay. uh, so it was quite a ride there. I got there and the engineering officer was an engineering officer at Parafield 1940 when I joined the Air Force so he, he was a wing commander by the stage it was uh, very very interesting with him You were saying you were at Togamall you were there doing uh, as a flight instructor how long were you there for? Uh, from uh, 19, July 1944 to 1946 apart from uh, we came down to Point Cook to do an instructor's course after being instructors <laughs> For a typical, they're going to yep. get rid of us for a while. Yep. And we went across to America to bring out some new aircraft. Uh, okay. And uh, just as the war finished. Yeah. Okay. And so 46 was when you demobilized? Uh, yes. But um, let's see what the. Yeah, that's uh, March. Uh, that's March. Yeah. Well, I was there for a couple of months after that. Yep. April, okay. May, somewhere around about there, I think. Okay. And where'd you go after the war? Did you keep flying? Uh, yes, I went to TA when I first started and okay. uh, flew with them for five years. So what aircraft did you fly with TA? Uh, DC-4s mostly and then DC-3s for a while. Okay, cool. And then gave it away. And that was, you wind up at TAA and that was the end, yeah? Yeah. Okay. About how many hours do you think you've got total on your logbook? Uh, about five and a half thousand, I think. Okay. And how many would you say are on Liberators? <sighs> God, I don't know, about two years, whatever that would be. Quite a few. What would be about a thousand or so hours, I think. Okay. Something like that. Okay. And, um, right, so you finished with TAA and went off and had a life for a while and didn't fly anymore, yeah? No, I, only as a passenger since. Okay. <laughs> and when did you start with the restoration project here? Oh, about ten years ago or more, I think. Uh, so, so I didn't come in at the start. I, I knew about the aircraft because I'd taken the CO of Point Cook down to have a look at it before okay. the group here had uh, had a look and they decided to give it to the Air Force and we were working out how to get it out of the backyard <laughs> and uh, a couple of weeks later some boys from me went down and offered him $10,000 for it and that <laughs> we got wiped <laughs> <laughs> beaten to the post <laughs> okay and uh, what do you do on the project? what do I do? Uh, all uh, framework uh, 
well, I worked on the, the front turret for about six months or more yep. with Dave Miller. Yep. And... Uh, Whatever John tells me to do after that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they'll let you touch, yeah? yeah. <laughs> well, I was a fit of three years, so I got some... And I had my own workshop at home, milling machine and lathes and so on. OK. So I was reasonably happy with what I was doing. I, w- I was wondering how they were allowing a uh, pilot to actually touch the aircraft, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John's managing pretty well, actually. <laughs> he's, a, he's a fanatic. You know, I have trouble keeping up with his quality. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Ed. Okay. Appreciate your time. Right. Thank you very much. And a big thanks there to Ed Crabtree for providing his time. It was getting pretty late in the day when we uh, did that interview, Grant, and I think uh, Ed was uh, feeling a little bit tired and was looking forward to uh, heading home and having a bit of a rest. But uh, we, yeah, we really appreciate uh, him spending some time with us. And, uh, gee, it's just so interesting to listen to these people. If you look at these men now, and, of course, they're, Grant, they're sort of advancing years, I guess, now, and it's, you know, you think back to those times when they were young men younger than us and... Uh, getting out there and doing all this sort of just vitally important work uh, you know to uh, protect this country uh, just amazing stuff uh, it really just it, I, I can't get enough of listening to uh, these sorts of stories from the, these types of people it's just fascinating I think yeah no it's it's always great listening to these stories of, of trying to come to grips with what these people went through what they did I don't think as they say it's the greatest generation because I don't think anyone will do it again we're too cynical now yeah <laughs> yeah so folks we really encourage you to get out there if you're down in this part of the world if you're down here in Melbourne and uh, you're sort of heading out down the Geelong Freeway and you've got a you know a spare hour or so and you're looking for something to do to occupy your time, I'd highly recommend dropping in and supporting these guys at uh, B24 Liberator Australia. They're in Werribee on the corner of the Geelong Road and Farm Road and you can find their website which is uh, b24australia.org.au. Uh, folks, I really encourage you to get down there. They need your support. They do need donations if you can spare them a few dollars. They've got some wonderful uh, memorabilia in their little shop there which they'll be more than happy to sell you. There are all sorts of things from uh, you know uh, beer coolers through to t-shirts wind cheaters all this sort of stuff uh, they really could use your support and don't forget the sacrifice that these men have made for us in decades past and this is the only b24 example in this country it's vitally important i think that it's preserved and uh, yeah they really do need your support so uh, yeah grant let's get out there and make sure they get the support they need yeah i'm looking forward to going down again so i can buy yet more merchandise they 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 honestly didn't have to hold me down and force me to buy i was happy to buy as much as i could get my hands on yeah in fact uh, grant we had to uh, drag you out of that shop so we get the interviews done and we'd probably still be there now yeah yeah my bank account would have run out eventually yeah. <laughs> and great to see the guys too they've got a bit of a portable display they take around to some of the air shows i think i have seen them at uh, Avalon in years past, Grant, but uh, yes. recently we were out at the uh, Centenary of Flight uh, celebrations there at Melton Airfield just a week or two back, and uh, great to see that the guys are out there with their display and uh, showing everybody what it is they're doing, so uh, hopefully that generates a bit of interest for them as well. Yeah, no, it does definitely seem to get a, a lot of people aware of what they're doing. There was certainly a large queue of all kiddies, young and old, queuing up to jump into that uh, cockpit section and uh, have a go at the controls. Yeah, actually, one of the things that they've got there is they've got a little um, go-kart thing that they've made up in, the, you know, sort of as a little miniature B-24. And uh, I know uh, my son Chris and your son Nikolai spent most of the day that we were there riding around in that thing and uh, yeah, quite nervously watched by me, making sure they didn't bump into anything, uh, you know, <laughs> that was too expensive yeah. if they damaged it. You know what it's like with 12-year-old boys. They don't sort of think safety first, unfortunately. So uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I, was, I, was, I was trying to keep an eye on them as well. And all the guys down there like, no, they're okay. 
okay they're boys let them have fun it's yeah. like okay yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was just wonderful and uh once again uh, just a huge thanks to uh, john temby and all the guys down there at uh, b24 liberator australia they showed us wonderful hospitality that day uh, more than happy to be interviewed and show us around the place uh, they let us climb all over the machine actually even let us climb into the plane at one stage and uh you know that's just a real privilege to be able to to see what they're up to and what they're doing and um yeah i'll certainly be heading out there again shortly uh, in the meantime grant we ought to wrap this episode up folks uh, thanks very much for listening we certainly hope you enjoyed it yep it's it, we had a lot of fun putting it together and we hope you've uh, found it entertaining and educational once again despite our best efforts you may learn something here yeah that's right folks folks uh, we envisage the next episode will not be uh, three weeks in the making uh, we, sh- we should be back in a week or so with a uh, with a, one of our usual uh, news and comment episodes but in the meantime just remember this it's what's down under that counts You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at planecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Yes, Christopher, what can I do for you? Can I go out now? No, you can't go out and play the drums now because we're recording. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> so, say hello to Grant. Say hello to David. Hello. Hey, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Greetings from the United States. Uh, Nico's just called out hello from the back. Oh, hi. Hi back, dude. All right. Give us, hey, uh, Nico's give, happy. Give us about half an hour and I'll give you the signal. Far out, that's what, right. What's the signal? All right, kid, you can make the noise. Yes. <laughs> Go and um, eat something or, you know, punch your sister or something. No, don't punch your sister. You'll be back in here in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know what will be. Mom, Dad said Chris could punch. Yeah. Oh, here's a good one. Why don't you go and make your bed? Oh, how to get the kid oh, to disappear. Wow. Terminal punishment. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 I don't want to. And the gentleman actually. Sorry, 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 sorry. Rings sorry, sorry. phoning. Definitely was the largest. Take 28. There's an outtake. Mm, Thanks.